the reason flavonoids interface with our genes in these incredible ways and regulate in level of inflammation in our bodies and protect our hearts and protect us from cancer is not some kind of magical coincidence. It's that our gene expression is tied to the ongoing presence of these polyphenols in our life. We have the genes we have and we have the enzymes that govern gene expression because we were constantly exposed to the stream of flavonoids in the context of our evolutionary history. You're listening to Plant Love Radio, episode 59. Welcome to Plant Love Radio, a place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You'll love my amazing guests, herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, friends. I hope you're doing well. Last year, I listened to a presentation about the benefits of eating berries, and the topic kind of stuck with me. I know we are not yet into the berry season, but give it another month or month and a half, and the strawberries will be here, and then blueberries, and so on. So why are these foods so essential to our survival and well-being? My today's guest have studied the topic for quite some time, and he's here to share his wisdom with us. Guido Massey is a clinical herbalist, herbal educator, and garden steward specializing in holistic Western herbalism. Though his approach is quite eclectic and draws upon many influences, and you will hear about this in our conversation. Guido spent his childhood in Italy, later coming to the United States and settling in Vermont in mid-90s. Guido's practice interweaves clinical experience, mythology, and science. He's a chief herbalist at Urban Moonshine, clinician at the Burlington Herb Clinic, and faculty member and clinical supervisor at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism. He also teaches herbal medicine at the University of Vermont. Guido have authored two books, The Wild Solution and Do-It-Yourself Bitters. We will spend today's conversation talking about the evolutionary advantage of human beings consuming brightly colored berries filled with polyphenols and flavonoids. And we'll talk a lot more about this during the interview. We also discuss some of the signs that plants are rich in these amazing compounds. Where do you find them in nature? And what are some of the best ways for consistently incorporating these compounds, polyphenols and flavonoids, into your diet? All the resources recommended in this interview, please head over to plantloveradio.com slash 59. I am completely fascinated by this topic and Guido's knowledge. So here it is. Enjoy. 
I'm so excited to welcome you back. During our first conversation, we talked in depth about how you got started in the field of herbal medicine, and I will definitely include the link to that conversation in our show notes. But for someone who is just joining us today for the first time, would you be able to briefly tell us how you decided to become an herbalist? Sure. Well, I, um, I grew up um, in Europe and spent a lot of times in the a lot of time in the Alps in Italy and there plant medicine is, is kind of a part of culture the way maybe tea or coffee are in the United States today in the sense that we would harvest um, elderflowers or we would go and gather um, bilberries from the forest or mushrooms from the forest and, and then come home and, and dry or process them and use them for infusions or um, use them as jams um, or use them as food. And, that was something that I never really thought too much about as a kid. I had fun doing it, um, but I really missed it when I ended up moving to the United States around age 14 um, to Kansas City, where my mom is from, um, and our family spent some time there. And it was right around sort of my late teenage years that it sort of gelled in my spirit that I missed these rituals of going out and interacting with plants in their sort of wild habitats and bringing them home and preserving them or um, brewing teas from these plants that we would gather. So I decided that I wanted to look into it more and figure out how um, these could come into my life again. At the same time, I was becoming very interested in the field of organic chemistry and biochemistry, as well as the sort of really rich folk tradition and mythological tradition, particularly in the Western context where I came from, um, you know, fairy tales, folklore, mythology. And I always felt kind of torn in two different directions between this sort of biochemistry science side of my interest and this more, more folkloric mythological side until I realized that herbal medicine actually unites these two apparently opposite ends of the human knowledge spectrum into one discipline, one art and science. And that's really, I think, so beautiful about herbal medicine that we have these fairy tales around them, but we also have a rich suite of chemistry inside these medicinal plants that speak to um, our physiologies and can be understood with sort of the more scientific side of our um, mind and our epistemology. So I kind of just said, well, this is it, and ran with it and decided to um, work with plant people around the country. I traveled around the country for a while, um, partly with a group of folks called the Rainbow Family, who move from location to location, um, sort of nomadically, and also live in the forest. And there it was cemented in me how powerful plants can be, even in sort of more acute situations where there might be an infection or um, trauma or, um, you know, a fever and how powerful plants are to address those concerns, even when you're really far from conventional technological medicine. Um, so after that experience and a few years of talking to folks, I ended up in Vermont in 1996, um, started hanging out with and working with folks like Rosemary Gladstar, who are based here in Vermont, and also growing medicinal plants on, you know, about an acre and a half. Um, there we would do production for liquid extract manufacturing. So we'd make tinctures and salves and really sell them at farmer's market and um, get to know the local community and, and be able to interface with them and, and bring medicinal plants um, into the life of folks in central Vermont. Um, that really, you know, um, was the beginning of my let's say, professional work around herbal medicine and um, being able to make a living and a livelihood and continue to learn more and more. Um, so in about 2001, I was one of the founding members of the Sage Mountain 
free herbal clinic where we work one-on-one with folks to figure out what kind of plants might be useful in their life. This turned into a clinical training program for herbalists and a nonprofit that I um, helped found and direct um, starting in 2007. Meanwhile, we were also um, working at expanding the herbal product line, and I partnered with my friend Jovial um, in this company called Urban Moonshine, again, back in 2007-2008, and continued to deepen my knowledge on plants and on the research that underpins the efficacy of these plants um, in order to make some, you know, great bitters formulations and other tonics as well. So it's been incredibly rewarding. Um, And the most rewarding thing for me is, again, that unification of what seem to be two opposite sides of the human knowledge spectrum, this sort of scientific, rational side, um, which plants really speak to, and this more mythological and um, folktale-based side, which speaks to our dreams and to, you know, our hearts and spirits, which, of course, plants and nature um, really are powerfully able to speak to as well. Passions and dreams together, and you are able to actually to bring them together and make uh, something really beautiful with them and really grow and develop professionally. So thank you for sharing this story. So last time we met, the primary topic of our conversation was bitters. And these are the compounds that have a huge historical and contemporary use. And maybe you can briefly mention them. But today I was hoping to concentrate a lot more on another group of compounds that I know you've been very interested in. And these are flavonoids. So if you could talk about how your interest got started. That's great. And I mean... I think about bitters a lot because I feel like they're a great encapsulation of what herbal medicine can offer us. You know, if you think about even something like Angostura bitters behind the bar, it's something that the culture has had um, as part of its daily experience. Um, And it's much more pronounced in Europe than it is in the United States, but we've had an amazing bitters revival in the last decade, right? So you see a lot of bitters in the United States as well now. And it's neat to me because it's not you know, bitters are this drug alternative that you should take instead of antacids or you should take instead of Pepto-Bismol. No, it's like something you kind of add to mealtimes and um, it's can it can be part of a social ritual um, around, you know, sparkling water with bitters or even a cocktail with bitters. But at the same time, it has real medicinal effects that are tonifying, that build the digestive fire and improve the body's ability to handle all manner of foods. And that's what I think is really unique about herbal medicine is that herbalists offer these tonics that are rooted in a cultural understanding of how to keep plants part of daily life. And also, rather than being drug-like and pushing back against problems, tonics really support the normal function of the human body, make us feel more strong and able to process things like all the foods we eat, all of the carbohydrates we consume as part of um, the daily Western diet, and do it with grace Um, so that we can feel well, right? So we can feel at the peak of our health rather than just disease-free. So bitters, you know, really encapsulate that tonic idea. But honestly, before I even spent a lot of time researching bitters, I was struck by these polyphenols, these compounds from plants, um, which flavonoids are sort of the broadest family of polyphenols in plants. Because one day it really gelled in my head that Plants produce these compounds for their own benefits, of course, but because we've evolved alongside plants, sort of side by side with them, 
a lot of the compounds that plants produce, and especially these flavonoids, these polyphenols, interface with us in a way that made me feel that plants are watching out for us. They're taking care of us and they're holding us so that we can be well and participate in the sort of broader ecological dance that plants find themselves in. So you can look at it as being self-interested. You know, plants are producing these polyphenols so that the animals can help the plants thrive. Or you can look at it as a bioregion or an ecology or even a garden, right? Being an organism that attempts to keep the humans that are part of it and the plants that are part of it, the insects, the mushrooms, the animals, all working harmoniously together. And these polyphenols, as I looked more and more into it, these flavonoids, are the glue that keeps all of those components knit together and functioning in a healthy way. Ultimately, that leads to the ecology functioning in a healthy way. And when that hit me, I was like, this is tangible evidence that plants care for us and that we're intimately linked to them. And that blew my mind and I wanted to know more. And so that's really what got me started on, on the research path around bioflavonoids. Um, and then, you know, of course we discovered what amazing health benefits do come from consuming these plants. Um, and that's great too. But the, the spark for me was really knowing and noticing that it's not like plants exist over here and animals exist over here and we do our own separate thing and maybe we exploit each other once in a while. No, we're part of the same super organism, this ecological being. And these flavonoids are the hormones that keep all of the different pieces of that ecological being connected. So you talked a little bit about this evolutionary purpose or uh, advantage to consuming these compounds, but can we talk a little bit of how humans started seeking out the sources of these constituents? Are there signs, are there certain ways to know that something is rich in polyphenols or in flavonoids specifically? Yes. Well, I don't think that humans necessarily were seeking out flavonoids, um, especially, you know, early on in the context of our evolutionary history, um, animals consume polyphenol rich plants. And that goes all the way from insects to, um, you know, primates and everything in between. But the simplest way I think to understand it, um, and to understand flavonoids as a signal is to, um, zero in on a particular subset of the flavonoids. And, and these compounds are called anthocyanins. Um, and they function as pigments. So for example, when you see an apple blushing red when it's mature, or when you see a blueberry going from, you know, greenish to blue, and then eventually to that ripe purple, or when you see a hawthorn berry mature to that sort of reddish purple, the ripeness signal that we see as a color, deep red or purple, right? That's coming from an anthocyanin, a flavonoid that is reflecting light in that particular wavelength, that red-purple wavelength moving towards ultraviolet. And we notice that, and we notice that that means that the berry is mature, that it's ripe. And of course, at that point, if we consume it, we're going to get nourished by the starches and carbohydrates that it contains. We're going to get a reward from the sweet flavor. That experience of consuming a handful of fresh blueberries is just a really rewarding one for us as an animal. But it's rewarding for the plant as well, because we help spread the seed, um, at least historically, of the berries we consume by walking around and eventually eliminating those seeds, right? And allowing them to grow in a different place. So the 
pigment, the flavonoid in this case in the berry, serves as a signal for the animal that the berry is nutritious and it's going to be really tasty, but it also guarantees that the animal is going to consume that berry when the seed is ready. Not earlier, not when the plant is not prepared, but right at the right moment when the plant is ready to spread its seed, the signal calls the bird or the animal to that berry, we consume it and we get that delicious nutrition and at the same time help spread um, the plant's um, seed so that it can grow and thrive. So really the, the polyphenol in this case is a signal that helps knit the reproductive cycle of the plant to the nourishment cycle of the animal. And these two things come together, um, I think in a beautiful way. And we can recognize it simply by color. And it's fascinating because these anthocyanins are pH sensitive. If you've ever done um, any home science experiments where you would take red onion skins or um, cabbage leaves, or even something like blueberry or elderberry and mush it all up um, and then apply vinegar to it, and watch it turn hot pink and apply baking soda to it and watch it turn kind of purple blue, you're noticing the pH sensitivity of these flavonoids, of these anthocyanins. And the same is true in a berry. When the berry is sour and there are a lot of organic acids in there and it's not ripe yet, it's going to look pink, right? Not quite ready. And as it matures, it's going to transition through purple and into blue, right? As those organic acids decrease, as the berry becomes sweeter and less sour. And that pH sensitivity is what causes the pigment change. The pigment change functions as the signal for the animal and the animal then consumes it to keep that whole cycle humming along in a really smooth way. So berry pigments are a great way for us to access polyphenols um, and particularly flavonoids and, and visually see them, right? But the original sort of Latin name flavonoid comes from the Latin word flavus, which means yellow. And a lot of the yellow pigmented flowers, especially that you see in nature, are loaded with flavonoids. Um, one of the most abundant sources is goldenrod flower, loaded with um, flavonoids like quercetin, for example, and some of the quercetin glycosides like rutin. Um, these provide sort of yellow light reflection, and that's why you see these flowers being yellow. Um, and you can be pretty guaranteed that if you see a flower that is pigmented, especially along the yellow lines of the spectrum, that it's got a lot of flavonoids in it. Botanists and biologists think that this is also a signal to the plant world, but in this case, it's a signal to pollinators. And what we found is that flavonoids um, reflect light not only in the sort of yellow side of the spectrum for us, or in goldenrod flower, but they reflect light on the ultraviolet side of the spectrum very, very well. This goes back to the berries, right, where the anthocyanins are reflecting that sort of purple side light on the way to ultraviolet. But flavonoids in general, and these polyphenols in general, reflect UV light really well. And of course, it seems that insects are able to detect light in the UV range of the spectrum. So they see these flowers full of flavonoids and they light up like neon glow against the background green that you see everywhere else and really attract those pollinators and those insects who are sensitive to UV light in a dramatic way. If you look at even simple yellow flowers like the flower of tormentil or cinquefoil um, under UV light, you'll notice this sort of concentric circle of flavonoid pigmentation that leads the pollinator directly to where the nectar and of course the pollen is. So I think that's another example of how these pigments function as signals. There's even more specific ones. Um, for example, the Sanita cactus out west is pollinated by a very specific night moth. Um, and that moth comes in, not only pollinates the cactus, 
but also deposits its eggs in the cactus itself. And what's fascinating is that there is a flavonoid that is present in the petals of the flower of the Sunita cactus. And right about midway on this long petal is the highest concentration of flavonoids. The moth sees this and uses that UV light reflection, that bright light that it sees midway on the petal of the Sunita cactus flower as a signal for where it should put its egg. And it drops its egg there. And then after the flower is pollinated, the petals curl inward. And because of the precise placement of that egg, the egg goes directly into the middle of where the fruit is maturing. So as the fruit matures, it creates this beautiful source of food for the little babies of the moth who then feed on it, right? The caterpillar grows, it works its way out of the fruit and it opens up the fruit and allows the seed to be dispersed. So the cactus can maintain its sort of reproductive and life cycle. So again, the life cycle of the Sunita moth, the life cycle of the Sunita cactus linked together in a very specific way by these cross kingdom signals that the flavonoids present. But for us, we see them reflecting yellow light. We see them reflecting kind of purple light. So we see that in yellow colored flowers, we see that in those deeply pigmented blue purple berries, like blueberries and bilberries, but also to a certain extent, um, raspberries and strawberries as well. Other berries like elderberry and aronia berry, um, very, very loaded in flavonoids too. Almost anywhere you see these pigments, especially if they're pH sensitive, right? If you mush them up and put vinegar on them and they turn hot pink, then you know you're dealing with a high anthocyanin content um, and you've got a source of lots of really beneficial flavonoids right there. Now, the only other thing I want to mention is part of the reason that plants, flavonoids, and polyphenols reflect UV light is that we think one of the first reasons plants begin to produce these compounds, which are not found in algae, was when plants began to colonize dry land. And of course, on dry land, the rays of the sun are much more intense and UV exposure is much higher. And in order to protect their DNA and prevent mutations induced by that UV radiation from the sun, plants started to overproduce polyphenols because these polyphenols reflect that UV light and essentially act as sunscreen for the plants. So across the botanical world on dry land, you see almost every plant has some flavonoid content inside it to act as sunscreen, as protection for its genetic material from UV radiation. But they're more highly concentrated in some very specific types of plants like those yellow flowers or those deeply pigmented red berries. Guido, this is absolutely fascinating. The last point that you made about flavonoids being sunscreens in a way for plants, I am assuming that this also translates to human beings. But also what I want to ask you is to talk a little bit about the benefits of consuming these compounds. Yeah. Um, well, in fact, we've done some interesting experiments where you take a flavonoid like quercetin um, that's found across a range of different plants. And you can get it in isolated form now. Um, it's not my favorite way to consume flavonoids, but it is interesting for this experiment. So we had a lotion and one lotion, um, you know, same two jars of the same lotion. And in one, we put a lot of quercetin and you apply that on the left arm. The other one without quercetin, you apply on the right arm. And then you go out into the sun for an hour. And believe it or not, the quercetin in the lotion on the left arm does actually protect even human skin from um, UV radiation. So it may be possible for an entrepreneuring herbalist um, to think about a, a natural plant-based sunscreen that is loaded in the same flavonoids that plants use to protect themselves from UV radiation. 
But of course, you know, especially nowadays, we're much more interested in um, the systemic tonic benefits of these flavonoids. And a lot of the research focuses on two particular areas of interest. Um, one is cardiovascular health, where we see berries like hawthorn berry or blueberry or even aronia berry um, having a lot of research behind them for things like health of small capillary vessels throughout the body, heart health, um, health of the heart muscle, even in things like heart failure. Um, flavonoids really seem to be able to provide a great protective and even um, sort of healing effect for cardiovascular disease in humans. And the other main area of research for these polyphenolic flavonoids um, is around just basic cellular housekeeping. And what I mean by that is, you know, a cell moment to moment will decide, um, should I, you know, begin to reorganize my components and maybe also start to shut down and sort of in an organized way um, go through this process called apoptosis, which is organized cellular self-destruct, or should I prolong my survival in the face of inflammation or damage um, and activate, you know, all of my antioxidant gene producing um, compounds. So day to day, the cells are thinking about whether to survive or whether to proliferate, whether to produce lots of inflammatory compounds or just a few. Um, and flavonoids interface with that day to day cellular housekeeping in this really interesting way which means that when they've looked at flavonoids in detail, for example, in liver health, they've found that flavonoids tend to decrease um, liver cell death in response to harmful chemicals and also prolong um, liver cell survival and increase the amount of native antioxidants that liver cells produce. They've also looked at flavonoids in the context of cancer, and they've found that in cancer cells, where sort of immortal genes, immortality genes are turned on and all of these self-destruct genes are turned off, flavonoids can help flip that switch back. So making cancer cells more likely to go through a self-destruct process, especially if they're being exposed to, um, you know, agents like chemotherapeutic agents that are, you know, really stressing that cancer cell out. It's going to be more likely that that cancer cell will just give up and go through self-destruct if there's lots of flavonoids on board. And Part of the reason flavonoids help both with cardiovascular health and with sort of cancer prevention and cellular longevity is because these polyphenols and flavonoids in particular interface with gene expression inside cells. And ultimately, this is the most miraculous and beautiful thing about the benefits that flavonoids can offer. They're not, um, you know, cell surface receptor modifiers like a beta blocker for high blood pressure that's blocking the effects of adrenaline on our heart, for example. Um, they're not um, anti-inflammatory compounds like steroids that turn off the immune system and, and keep inflammation from happening, or even an aspirin, which, you know, decreases the amount of prostaglandins and pro-inflammatory compounds that um, we produce by sort of blocking or affecting this enzyme. They're really deep modifiers of gene expression, meaning they interface with the enzymes that turn on and off different portions of our genome. And that's where we're looking at self-destruct switches versus cancer immortality switches or oncogenes. Um, that's where we're looking at some of the genes that code for the production of proteins that are on the outer surface of the cells that line our blood vessels. These proteins protect our blood vessel cells from damage, from reactive free radicals, 
um, from anything that would cause plaque formation or inflammation in the cardiovascular system. So it's not that they're anti-inflammatory in the strict sense of the word or, or really antioxidant in the way we think of antioxidants. These polyphenols provide benefits to the cardiovascular system, to inflammation, and to cancer prevention by going into every cell of our body and modifying the expression of our genes. And in fact, they've found that flavonoids like quercetin, for instance, are able to cross the blood-brain barrier and affect the genetic expression of neuronal tissue as well. Um, for example, speeding regrowth and repair of the axons of nerves that might have been damaged by a stroke or by a traumatic brain injury. So after the emergency has abated and after the person has left the hospital. They can work with an herbalist to bring more flavonoids and polyphenols into their life um, and thereby speed the recovery of the nerve tissue in their brain central nervous system. This is all done through gene expression modification and the consequences are profound. You mentioned that someone can work with herbalists to bring more uh, flavonoids into their life. Can we talk about some of the strategies? So perhaps your favorite strategies of how you bring flavonoids into your own life. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just preface this by saying that if you taste a flavonoid in its isolated form, even a plant pigment like an anthocyanin, certainly a flavonoid like quercetin, they're going to taste bitter. And as a result, um, you know, not as bitter as some of the compounds in gentian root, but still kind of bitter. And as a result, um, a lot of times, especially kids, if they eat uh, heirloom vegetable that is loaded with flavonoids, they're going to find that it has a little bit of a bitterness that they're not as fond of. I think one of the ways you can really see this is by going um, to pick a wild carrot, which is Queen Anne's lace, um, same plant. Um, make sure that you identify it properly because many members of the parsley family are somewhat toxic. Queen Anne's lace is not, but you got the right ID. Um, if you look at the root of Queen Anne's lace, it's white. It doesn't have a lot of carotenoids in it. It doesn't have a lot of sweet starches in it. It tastes kind of bitter and extremely pungent, but it's the exact same vegetable as the orange carrots we get at the supermarket. What's different about it is, is that humans have bred the orange carrots we get at the supermarket for thousands of years to eliminate the bitter flavor and make them more sweet and palatable, right? So as a result, the flavonoid content of most of the vegetables that we find in the grocery store is very low compared to their wild counterparts. This includes things like broccoli and kale compared to wild mustards. Flavonoid and sulfur-rich compound content is much higher in those wild plants, right? So this brings us right back to herbal medicine what are herbalists working with? We're working with a lot of the same plants that have become our vegetables, except we're working with the wild, unhybridized versions of those plants. And as a result, their flavonoid content across the board is going to be a whole lot higher. But there are some specific plants that we turn to over and over again as modulators of cardiovascular inflammation, as supporters of liver function um, because of their high flavonoid content and their anti-cancer effects also. I would start at the top of the list with our deeply pigmented berries, like we were talking about earlier. And, you know, it doesn't have to be um, this particular bilberry or this particular hawthorn berry. A lot of the research has been done on those two fruits, but any deeply pigmented berry will have a lot of these um, anthocyanin flavonoids in it. And consuming them on a daily basis is not too difficult to do. My favorite way is to eat them with... Um, 
uh, like a breakfast grain, like oatmeal, for example. But another really great way to do it is to put them in smoothies. And a lot of folks are into their smoothies these days, throwing, um, you know, a quarter to a half cup of these deeply pigmented berries into your smoothie or into your oatmeal every day is one of the absolutely easiest ways, and I think a delicious way, to get a good measure of flavonoids into your system on a daily basis. And the sooner we start with that, the better, right? Because remember, it's modifying the expression of our genes across every single cell of the body, um, and particularly impactful on the liver, um, on potential for cancer, on potential for cardiovascular disease. So if we end up sort of modulating gene expression, you know, starting as early as possible, then we'll find that um, the ongoing presence of these flavonoids in our life reduce the potential for things like cancer and cardiovascular disease later. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who's dealing with cancer or dealing with cardiovascular disease now can't benefit from these flavonoids. They certainly can. But the sooner you start, the better. So if smoothies or morning oatmeal with blueberries just isn't your thing, Another really, really easy way um, to get flavonoids into your life is to make essentially a jam or a jelly with hawthorn berries or blueberries. Um, and then, you know, you can use that as a medicinal extract if you'd like, or you can use that in the way we use jellies all the time, which is to, you know, spread them on a cracker or make a peanut butter jelly sandwich out of it. Um, I would try not to get the stuff that is already commercially made, right? It's different to get a jar of blueberry jam um, than it is to make your sort of own blueberry pulp. Um, but, you know, if, if that's the only way you can get these berries into your life, that's okay too. And so I would recommend an organic, unsweetened or no sugar added um, whole berry jam, um, like the ones made by BioNature, for example, which are essentially just berry pulp right? And you put that material right into your life um, at the dose of about two tablespoons a day. It seems to deliver a, a good amount of flavonoids. Another incredible way to do it, um, you know, we were talking about red onions having that pigment that changes pH that is a sign that we've got these polyphenolic anthocyanins in there. But yellow onions also are loaded with quercetin, which is another important flavonoid that is great anti-inflammatory, cardiovascular tonic, neurotonic, cancer preventive agent. And if you take, you know, five or six yellow onions, nice big ones, and you chop them all up after peeling them, and you gently saute them over really low heat, right? Um, after half an hour to an hour, they'll go from being translucent to turning into this sort of golden mush. And as you keep going on a low heat, they become more and more concentrated, more and more sweet and caramelized and all of that quercetin content is preserved. And you can essentially treat that just as you would a jam, except it's a little more savory. So you can serve it on crackers, uh, maybe with a little cheese if that's your thing, um, or you can use vegetables like um, celery sticks or carrots um, to dip into that delicious sweet onion butter, essentially. And it is so loaded with quercetin, um, it provides that really good benefit in the same way as the blueberry jam does. And the dose is similar, you know, one to two tablespoons a day. This brings us back to the idea um, that, you know, we're cooking the onions, we're potentially cooking the blueberries or elderberries or hawthorn berries down to a pulp. These flavonoids and these pigments are very heat stable. And I'm really glad about that because it allows us to concentrate them by evaporating off the water and making these delicious jams. So one of the ways, because I'm not always the best at canning, that I get around um, sort of the safety piece because, you know, jams can mold, um, they can spoil, is to just put them in tiny 
um, eight ounce mason jars, uh, eight ounce canning jars, and just put those in the freezer, right? If you put them in the freezer, you can pull one out, um, you know, every week, and you'll have the jam that you need um, to help maintain that high polyphenol content into your life. Um, with the onion butter, you know, maybe we'll make that once a week and you can just keep that in the fridge and you can bring it out, um, add it to sauces, add it to soups, or just like I was saying, treat it as an aperitif. The other way that you can get a lot of flavonoids into your system is just by simply making herbal tea. Um, many flavonoid polyphenols are not super water soluble. Um, the reason for this is that the polyphenols, like two phenolic rings, phenolic rings are are more oil soluble than they are water soluble. And it's difficult to um, dissolve them in water effectively. You see this with a polyphenol from turmeric called curcumin, which isn't really a flavonoid, but still is a polyphenolic compound, very difficult to dissolve in water, right? That's why we talk about mixing turmeric root with milk or ghee or other oily substances. But the beauty of how nature packages these flavonoids for us is that in a plant like goldenrod, for instance, they're attached, the flavonoids are attached to a sugar molecule, and this dramatically increases their water solubility. They form what are called glycosides. And as a result, we can be very confident that taking a, you know, um, good handful of goldenrod leaves and flowers and steeping them in hot water um, will deliver a good amount of flavonoids and quercetin glycosides into that tea, which we then can drink and consume. Almost any wild plant will have an appreciable quantity of flavonoids in it. There are some that have um, a lot higher content than others, and sort of goldenrod is right at the top of the list. But um, you see flavonoids in many of the leguminous plants, like red clover, for instance. These are some special flavonoids called isoflavones that seem to have particular relevance in the context of estrogen-positive breast cancer, for instance, or the perimenopausal transition. But they're also protective for cardiovascular health. Um, so my favorite ways, at least for me, are jams from deeply pigmented berries, cooking down onions into this delicious caramelized onion butter, and making teas out of the flowering parts of plants like goldenrod, for example. All of these deliver great flavonoids um, content to whoever consumes them. You see less inflammation, less potential for cancer, better cardiovascular health as a result. Thank you. This is great. You made me realize just how many different plants have these compounds in them. And this is sometimes is misunderstood or forgotten by people because when they think of flavonoids, they think of berries and berries are very seasonal. And unless you are, you know, preparing them and making jams and preserving them for winters, you're kind of thinking, well, you know, it's something that I just do during the summer. But this is a great reminder that during your fall, you have bright colored vegetables, carotenoid-rich vegetables. You can have also different herbs that are so rich in flavonoids. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and you know, it doesn't stop there. Um, closely allied to the flavonoids are other polyphenols called still beans, for instance. And you get, um, you know, one of the most famous still beans is resveratrol. And that comes from grape skins. So, you know, wine and even grape juice. Again, think of that color, right? It's a pigment just in the same way as the anthocyanins are. And there's anthocyanins in grapes as well. But one of the other major sources of these polyphenolic stilbenoids is Japanese knotweed root, for example. You can harvest those roots um, any time of year um, and you can keep them year round or grind them into a powder and keep them year round. 
And again, one to two tablespoons of that on a daily basis delivers a, a great quantity of these important polyphenols that are um, cardioprotective and anti-cancer and all of the great benefits we've talked about. It's interesting to note that um, almost all traditional cultures, which have traditional cuisines as well as traditional healing systems, and there's a huge overlap between the two, have recognized how important it is to gather those berries when you get them um, and preserve them somehow. So not only like a great jam making culture, you know, from everywhere in the world where these berries exist, but also, for example, in the Arctic tundra, where you see First Nations folks, for example, from Canada, um, northern part of North America, preserving the berries that they gather in the peak of summer, along with some of the meats that they cure and making things like pemmican that's loaded with berries as well as meat to act as a important preserved food for winter and also just keep that flow of polyphenols going through the system. Now, no one was doing that on purpose. It's a great consequence of being a human who's rooted in a traditional cuisine and a traditional healing system. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's great to see how folks have been um, capturing the benefits of these flavonoids and, and being able to keep them into their system year round. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about some of the sources of information that you could recommend to our listeners on flavonoids or polyphenols in general, whether it's your own writing or speaking or specific companies or maybe books or sites, anything that comes to mind. Yeah, um, I think that folks are, are thinking a lot more about um, the importance of these polyphenols and talking a lot more about them, uh, at least in the last couple of decades. And we're moving from this idea, which is where we started with these polyphenols, um, we're moving from the idea that they're antioxidants to the idea that they are sort of modifiers of gene expression, supporters of great cardiovascular health, um, anti-cancer agents. And um, the, the antioxidant idea is true. In a Petri dish, flavonoids do have antioxidant qualities, but the doses that we get from eating jams um, or drinking teas is nowhere close to the amount of flavonoids that are applied in Petri dishes where they're found to have antioxidant content. But that's really not what they're about, right? Antioxidant is this word that I'm not too fond of because it implies this battle, right, between us and the oxidants in the body. We're starting to learn more and more that oxidizing compounds aren't necessarily entirely evil. For example, in exercising athletes, um, a certain amount of free radical production is important to help remodel tissue and increase the strength of ligaments and joints um, to resist or withstand the impact that the athlete is putting on those joints. Um, so we don't want to just suppress that necessarily. We want to modulate that. And flavonoids, because of their concentration is so low by the time those polyphenols get into a cell, they aren't really having antioxidant effects. Let me just give you an example. You take the flavolignin um, group, silymarin from milk thistle. Um, yes, it has antioxidant effects in a Petri dish, but when it gets into the liver, even at super low concentrations, silymarin induces a tenfold increase in the production of our own antioxidant, glutathione. So again, milk thistle is not doing the direct free radical fighting. It's turning on the genes that allow our body to produce our own. Just like bitters turn on all of the digestive function and help us digest all manner of foods with grace and strength, polyphenols and flavonoids turn on and activate all of our cells' own antioxidant and protective and regulatory mechanisms. And when you look at some of the research, it seems that these flavonoids are doing it through some of the enzyme pathways, um, for example, sirtuins, um, that 
are also activated when people fast or when they're in caloric restriction diets. And so when people get into this place um, of caloric restriction, you start to see the cells really change their behavior. They turn on longevity genes and protective and anti-inflammatory genes. And they also alter their metabolism a little bit. Flavonoids seem to be able to do that to a cell without that cell actually being starved of nutrients. And if you ask me, who you know, really loves his food and, and berries and likes to eat, I don't think I could ever withstand a caloric restriction regime for very long. Um, but being able to activate all of those same genes through the use of flavonoids, hey, that works great for me. So if you um, want to learn more about it, honestly, one of the places where um, I turn to is um, the scientific literature. And you can search around polyphenols and gene expression, or you can search around polyphenols and sirtuins. Um, the sirtuins are spelled S-I-R-T-U-I-N-S. Um, and it's a class of gene regulating proteins um, that were first discovered in mice, but we find that all um, mammals and many animals beyond mammals have them. So those are two great places to start. Um, but you can also um, look at um, herbal uh, pharmacology sorts, um, sources and sites. Um, for example, Lisa Ganora, um, who puts out some great um, phytopharmacology instruction um, through the American Herbalist Guild and also through her own um, website. Um, I myself talk about uh, flavonoids in the context of phytopharmacology, both through the American Herbalist Guild and through um, Thomas Easley's Eclectic School of Herbal Medicine. And I did write about um, the benefits of what I call sour tonics, like these berries we've been talking about in the Wild Medicine Solution, um, where I have a whole chapter sort of dedicated to the cardiovascular and anti-cancer benefits and mechanisms that these flavonoids use um, to help deliver some of those anti-cancer benefits. Um, but, you know, if you'd have a hard time not finding some level of excitement around polyphenols and flavonoids, even in the mainstream literature. Um, so just keep an eye out or create a Google Scholar alert or just a Google search alert on polyphenols and flavonoids, and you'll find a lot of news coming across your inbox every day, um, or at least every week. Um, where new developments in understanding how these polyphenols interface with our gene expression um, are brought to the fore. This is great. Thank you so much. Guida, as we are heading to the end of our interview, I have a couple of more questions for you. So one of them is, as you utilize these compounds, I was hoping to hear a little bit more about your practice. I know you're teaching. I know you're writing. I know you're formulating. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that and also how they can continue to learn more from you and about you? First of all, I'll just say there's amazing herbalists all across the country, and most of these folks um, are really well-versed in what I'm coming around to, which is, as an herbalist, I'm best equipped to act as a matchmaker between plants and people um, so that they can bring the tonic power of herbs into their life, right? And that's what flavonoids are, kind of like bitters are the tonic for our digestion, Flavonoids seem to be the tonic for the expression of our genes, helping to regulate and normalize gene expression and keep it off of this inflammatory train or this cancer-related train um, or some of these trains that lead to cardiovascular disease. Um, most herbalists around the country are real familiar with that. So getting into a conversation with them um, will really, I think, open your eyes and, and your heart literally to the benefits that plants can provide. 
If you want to know a little bit more about what I do, um, I'm working a lot with Urban Moonshine, um, which is an extract and tonic company, um, and Traditional Medicinals, which is an amazing tea company as well. And if you go to urbanmoonshine.com, I mean, almost every month, um, I'll post new information around the tonic power of plants, whether that be bitter tonics, um, the power of gardening for our health and well-being, um, the interesting botanical qualities of plants that lead to the creation and expression of these compounds like flavonoids, and some of the benefits around um, flavonoid consumption in general. So urbanmoonshine.com is a great place to kind of keep up on some of the writing I do around herbal medicine and the science updates um, for herbal medicine. Um, I also uh, teach pharmacology and um, pathophysiology and therapeutics and act as a clinical supervisor at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, which is based here in central Vermont, um, VCIH. You can find it at vtherbcenter.org. Um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. It's an herb school and clinic um, where folks can learn a lot more about the power of plants and how to bring them into their lives. And finally, my practice, my um, clinical practice, where I work one-on-one -on -one with folks, is located um, here in lovely, beautiful Burlington, Vermont, uh, right on the shores of Lake Champlain um, at this great place called Rail Yard Apothecary, which was founded by a collective of herbalists um, just a little over three years ago. We just had our three-year anniversary. And um, these folks kind of spent endless hours, um, uncompensated, kind of bringing together this amazing resource for our local community that um, relies on local growers and suppliers of herbal medicine, provides great classes, both in person and online, and is also the home for our community herbal clinic. And that's where um, I do a lot of my practice work. We do have the ability to do some remote consultation work too. Um, so you can um, find us through um, railyardapothecary.com um, uh, here in Burlington, Vermont, and just get in touch. If you want to know a little more about it, we can schedule either a private session or you can plug into some of the online classes that Railyard offers. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And my last question for you, do you have any words of wisdom to our audience, whether about flavonoids or what we discussed today or about herbal medicine in general? Well, words of wisdom, I don't know. But um, I think the, the piece that I always remember, whether it's walking in the forest or walking out to my garden or making a cup of tea, is that we evolved in the context of of a really rich botanical world. The reason flavonoids interface with our genes in these incredible ways and regulate in level of inflammation in our bodies and protect our hearts and protect us from cancer is not some kind of magical coincidence. It's that our gene expression is tied to the ongoing presence of these polyphenols in our life. We have the genes we have and we have the enzymes that govern gene expression because we were constantly exposed to the stream of flavonoids in the context of our evolutionary history. So I think the greatest thing we can offer as herbalists and as people who believe in the power of plants is trying to reconnect folks, especially in the modern Western world, to that stream of polyphenols and that stream of flavonoids. And the best way to do it is to go and consume, safely of course, with positive identification, these wild plants and berries because you can be pretty guaranteed that you've got a high flavonoid content in there in one way or another. So you don't have to be, um, you know, super specific or precise. And if you don't have a hawthorn growing in your community, well, then you just can't have cardiovascular protection. No, any kind of berry, including apples, right? Which are really just big berries. 
are loaded with these flavonoids. And any kind of plant that you can find that has a brightly colored flower and that is wild, that hasn't been hybridized or touched by human agricultural tinkering, it's going to have a good amount of flavonoids in there. And when those flavonoids are consumed, you end up modulating the expression of your genes, preventing cardiovascular disease, preventing cancer, and helping to address those um, concerns, even if they're already present. So get those wild plants into people's bodies, get those deeply pigmented berries into people's bodies, do everything you can to preserve them and think about it as a habit, just like exercise, as opposed to a drug that you have to take for a problem. And if we get back into this habit of exposing ourselves to flavonoids every day, our cells will be happier for it. And as a result, we will feel more well. And some of these important diseases, big sources of mortality and morbidity in Western culture, cardiovascular disease, cancer, metabolic dysregulation, those will tend to be less impactful as a result. Guido, thank you so much. Such a fascinating discussion. I absolutely love the message that you are sharing. Thank you so much for your time. Lana, thanks for putting these ideas out into the world um, and for your great podcast and um, all the great voices that you bring into the community. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Guido Massey. I hope you have enjoyed it. To explore the resources mentioned in today's interview, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 59. Are you listening to Plant Love Radio for the first time? Please subscribe to the podcast to seamlessly get future episodes downloaded to your device. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to many amazing guests and topics. And of course, nothing says thank you better than sharing this show with a friend who might enjoy it and giving us a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine, David Scholl, and is called Something About Cat. My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate you. Till the next time, thank you for loving plants and planting love.